July 24th, 2022. I'd like to, this morning, discuss with you a particular and specific topic. It relates to a conversation we've had on many occasions. It's another step in a different direction with regards to this same issue, and that is dealing with and understanding the way that we have, by nature, Torah in two facets, in two representations. We, of course, have a Torah Shbikhtav and we have a Torah Shbalpeh. Torah Shbikhtav constitutes the written Torah that we received from Moshe, the Nevi'im, the Ketubim, and so forth. That's Torah Shbikhtav. And then Torah Shbalpeh, which for many generations, for a long time, was purposed to be and existed as Baalpeh, as oral tradition. And then, already, and we'll read it from source number one in just a few moments, the Gemara describes how at a particular juncture, for a specific reason, the rabbis determined it was not only appropriate, it was necessary to put down to words on paper that oral tradition, and from there on in, until today, that oral tradition, what was once taught from teacher to student, from parent to child, is now accessible in a much easier and widespread way through the use of texts. And what I've always been fascinated by and continue to be fascinated by is how that oral tradition takes on different natures and different manifestations specifically because of that turn, because the oral tradition as it was purposed, quote unquote, to be, is now textual, we pay careful and particular attention to those texts. And there's always the question, how much credence should the text have over the oral word? Which means to say, for argument's sake, and this is really how we'll begin the class, I'll give you a few of my favorite examples with regards to that contradiction in today's day and age. I'm not talking about a 1,500-year-old issue. Today's day and age, I have several examples with regards to that dichotomy, that contrast between an oral tradition and a textual one in a very real way. Several decades ago, my father, probably Sammy, uh, maybe Jack, several individuals were involved in the publication. I'm aware, but, li- <laughs> but, but listen to it here, in the young, young, young man, Jack, anyway, we're involved in the publication of the young Sha'ares Yon Haggadah. At the time, it was groundbreaking with regards to its novelty of bringing a Syrian tradition, Haggadah, to the community, to the world at large, and they turned to, and I don't know this actually firsthand other than Ironically, reading the text on this, they turned to Haham Baruch, who at the time was very involved in Sha'ar Esion. For many years, my father considered him his primary halachic influence uh, for a Ketav uh, Haskama, to give his, uh, his, his uh, stamp of approval to the book. And so he writes in it, and this is accessible to any and all if you were to read it, he writes in it, listen, they did a great job with regards to the pisuk and the words and so forth in this Haggadah. However... There's this section at the end where they summarize the words of my contemporary, my friend, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, with regards to the laws of Pesach, and know this, writes Hacham Baruch. Although what they wrote, what he writes, is letter of the law, textually speaking, sound, we have a tradition. It's a tradition we've known for hundreds of years that when it comes to Pesach, we're stringent on all or many matters. And as a result, don't actually follow those written words. Instead, follow our tradition on this matter. It's an amazing introduction. Just a few weeks ago, I was remembering it together with my father because it's always interesting when you read the introduction to a book 
And the introduction, not introduction, the haskama, the stamp of approval, is doing anything but putting a stamp of approval on it. But over there, the first example, with regards to several, many, I mean, you know, this is for me, this is just always fun to notice these circumstances where he's stating, listen, this is true on black and white letters. However, with regards to practice, this isn't what we do. I'm not taking a stance on the halakha on that. I'm just noticing that reality. I, had a, I have a rabbi, his name was Rabbi, is rabbi Chaim Ilson. He was in turn inspired by a rabbi, his name was Rabbi Yisrael Gustman. Rabbi Yisrael Ze'ev Gustman uh, spent much time in Europe before the Holocaust. He survived the Holocaust, made his way to first New York, and then to Israel, and Rabbi Ilson studied with him. He had, when he was younger, Rabbi Gustman, the opportunity to visit Hafez Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Mayor HaKohen of Radin. Hafez Chaim is the author of Mishnah Berurah, which is one of the primary texts with regards to Ora Chaim Shohan Aruch, to the everyday activities that are detailed in Shohan Aruch. In his commentary to Shohan Aruch, he writes something very striking, and he's very strong about it. He writes, and of course he's writing primarily for Ashkenazim, but by extension, Chacham Vadeza, for example, has a commentary on Mishnah Berurah. We have in here Rabbi Mazuz's commentary. There's many Sfaradi commentaries because it's a, it's a text which collected many others, and in turn, it's used almost as an encyclopedic text for understanding what Shohan Aruch means. In there, he has a segment with regards to wearing a talet katan, wearing sisit on a daily basis, and he writes that wearing them is not sufficient. If you're not wearing Wearing them and the sisiot being exposed, if you don't walk past the person and see the white strands, white and blue strands today, we would say, coming out, you're missing the point of you're supposed to be able to see them. And a person, an individual who's embarrassed because they're wearing that tadlet katan and it's hidden underneath their pants, underneath their shirt, they are atidim, those individuals, Gabby, are in trouble here. They're atidim litendin, they're going to have to deal with quote-unquote, the heavenly tribunal have to answer God for why they did so. So, I bring you back to Rabbi Gustman's story. He visited as a young man, Hafez Hayim. Everybody had knowledge of his strong words about wearing your sisiot out. And would you know it, as he looked at Hafez Hayim, there were no sisiot hanging outside. He didn't have the audacity to ask the rabbi at that time what was going on. Your written words seemed to contradict your practiced or traditional word of, of way, but that is my second example of many. Third one is in Mishnah Berurah as well. He writes in, in, in two places about the obligation of women to pray on a daily basis. There's a mahluk between the Aharonim based on the Rishonim with regards to Sephardic versus Ashkenazic women with regards to the obligation of prayer. But talks about the obligation of prayer. He details it and he is very clear about a obligation of prayer for women. In the biography of Hafez Chaim by his son, Rabbi Aryeh Leib, if I'm not mistaken, it's called Meir Ene Yisrael, he writes that his mother, Alea Shalom, didn't pray on a daily basis with the instruction of her father, his father. His father told his wife, you're taking care of the children, that's what should be your primary focus and concern. But he never wrote it in his book. Lastly, again, amongst many, because these are really just for me, the the tipping points of getting us into the conversation. It was, for me, an oral type of conversation for a long time, until in 2016, Hacham of Adya Yosef passed away, and many of his children and students started writing down things that aren't found in his books. But I heard from Rabbi Baruch Simon of Yeshiva University that when Rabbi Hacham of Adya Yosef came in the early 1990s, 
considering, as Yeshiva University believes, whether this is reality or not, considering taking the head of Yeshiva University. They were, they were working on him. He was there for several weeks. He was giving classes there. And their hope was, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, that he would become the Rosh Yeshiva at the time. Anyway, at that time period, he spent some time in the library. Rabbi Simon, until today, spends a lot of time in the library. And he had a conversation with Hacham Vadya Yosef about many matters. I, you know, being the Sfaradi, rabbinical student, and lived in the same building, after I was married with Rabbi Simon, I found out about a lot of those conversations. One that at the time was striking to me was that Chacham Ovadia told him that when it comes to eating masa throughout the year, he says, he won't eat masa outside of a meal where he's saying hamotzi which means to say, although he writes in his books to uphold a Sephardic custom to say mizonot throughout the year on Masa, of course not on Pesach, when it's Hamosi, he himself would practice in the, we would say today, like Ashkenazim, he would make certain that if he was going to have it, he would have it as part of a larger meal because he was nervous about that determination in Halakha. An amazing thing again writing in your books very confidently and clearly that Svaradim and his halachic opinion should be saying mezonot, but practicing differently. Right, those are four just basic examples of, again, how do we weigh what's supposed to be our scale with regards to these sorts of circumstances, and each of those is different in their own dynamic. I want to begin the class, though, with two cases that are very similar with regards to this type of issue, and they complicate matters more, but they really bring us into the issues that I want to address, and I'll bring you backwards in this, in, with regards to our sources. It's purposefully written in this, in this order, because chron chronologically they should be last, but I want to first, for uh, attraction, for entertainment reasons, start with sources 17 through 21. So if you'll turn to the last side, page four, the last several sources here, I want to deal with two issues. Neither one of them do I want to address right now, halakha lema'aseh, not the objective or purpose of this class, but I do want to talk about the claims that were made and in turn the conversations that ensued. Surah 17 is written by Hacham Ovadia Hadayat. Sheilot Shubot Yaskil Abdi. Yaskil Abdi, Hacham Ovadia Hadayat passed away in 1969. He was born in Aleppo. He spent much of his, his life and career in Yerushalayim as a member of the Betin of Yeshivat HaMakubalim. And he and his, he's related to community members of the Kassin family. And Sheilot Shubot Yaskil Abdi, Gimal here in source number 17, he's dealing with the following issue. He wants to know about riding bicycles on Shabbat. Are they permitted? Is there any, is there any prohibition or not? And he quotes from, initially, the words of Ben Ishai, to be Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, who in his She'elot to Shabbat Rav Pe'alim, argues based on uh, an understanding of the Gemara, of Nodab Yehuda and his work Selach, and so forth, that it's permitted on Shabbat and Yom Tov to ride on bicycles. Says Yaski Labdi, says Chacham Abadi Ahadaya. What's that? And he writes explicitly, Benish Hai, that it needs to be within. He writes explicitly that he's not addressing Eruv issues, and there would be. Uh, as I said, I'm not addressing Halakha right now. But he, in that context, says Hacham Hadaya in reacting to that, he says, first and foremost, it seems clear to me, Ubevadai Hagamur, you start a sentence with, and with full certainty. That's a pretty strong statement. He says, that great man, that great scholar and rabbi, Ben Ishchai, did not know how bicycles worked. I don't, he doesn't write this, but I wonder if he ever rode on a bicycle. He did. 
didn't know that bicycles are so prone to being uh, disjointed, to being messed up, and in turn bringing the person to, to fix them, had he realized that he would not have taken the stance. That's hacham. already a bold statement. I, you think that the rabbi's writing is teshubah without looking into the reality? That's the first statement, but the last statement is the one that's most significant for our purposes. He writes, vikim dumani, the second line, the second word, shamati, I think I heard, mipi magide emet, he says, I think I heard from some of the scholars and rabbis of Bavel, of Baghdad, who of course experienced and lived with Ben Ishai, with Rabbi Yosef Hayim. I don't remember who it was, he writes. They said, they would say, Indeed, when Rabbi Yosef Hayim of Baghdad looked into what bicycles were and how they worked, he changed his opinion and he forbade. Well, would you know it? What are we to do in such a circumstance? Let's say, let's say it's not a person that you're sister. Let's say you heard it. That's well, okay. Let's say you heard it from someone who heard it from him, and you're not suspicious that they're making up a story. So Ben Ishai wrote in his book, Rav Pe'alim, that bicycles are permitted on Shabbat in Yom Tov. But then you heard from someone whom you trust that he changed his opinion, but he never put it in writing. What are you supposed to do in such a circumstance? I'm not, for our purposes, casting aspersion on these anonymous cannot be deciphered and determined who they are. Let's say we know who they are. They're standing in front of us. They could give us the date and time. If you've ever spoken with Rabbi Shema, at least in my experience, date and time to every conversation ever. Hard to believe anything he's saying is not factual because he can really determine. Let's say he met a Rabbi Shema who in turn was with Rabbi Yosef Hayim of Baghdad and he tells you, on this date, in this class, he changed his opinion. What are you to do then? I purposefully, purposefully, purposefully mentioned at the onset of the class the situation of the sisiot inside as opposed to outside. Uh, there are others. The two that I'm giving you are not going to go in that direction. And you can understand why they don't go in that direction because when there's a written word, the adherence, the community at large, gets nervous and has a tendency not necessarily to fabricate, but maybe to pressure, maybe to change the opinion. It's much harder to be lenient than to be stringent. That's the real answer to your question. But what are we to do in such a circumstance? Well, so, what was the issue of Rabbi Hedaya? The breakage? Rabbi Hedaya says, it, fix it. Fix it. His fear is, as the Gemara has in Masechet Betzah, several circumstances of Shemeyitakin, you're not allowed to play an instrument because you might come to fix it. He says maybe we'd extend it to here. You might make the claim, as Chacham Vadya Yosef does in the halachic argument, that we don't just construct and create Shemeyitakin circumstances. Maybe I'll fix this chair, maybe I'll fix the door and so forth. But that is his claim. Not my issue for right now. My specific issue is that he says he changed his opinion. Chacham Vadya Yosef in several places, in Yabiya Omer, Hazon Ovadyati, and in Halichot Olam, in source number 18, which I had access to this morning at 4 o'clock, that's why it's on the page. Halichot Olam Halek Dalit, on page Reshmem Bet, through Reshmem Gimal, says, what, what, what are you talking about? I can't accept such a reality. I can't accept such a claim. And here we're dealing with an author. I, it might be expensive to publish books, but if you wrote a Pesach Halacha, and you changed your opinion on that Pesach, you better write that. And if you didn't write it from a 
halachic scholarship perspective and standpoint, it needs to be accepted your written word. How fascinating. Again, I can't promise you he would say it the way I'm saying it because he might say that we're uncertain whether the testimony is right. But the way I'm suggesting it is, even if I'm certain, it's my brother, it's my father, it's my spouse, and they're saying to me that he changed his opinion. I nonetheless lay more weight on the written word than the quote-unquote oral word and tradition. That is already a transformation of Torah Shabal Peh. Whereas Torah Shabal Peh began, and we're going to discuss this, as an oral tradition where nothing was to be written down, unless it was for memory reasons, Ezra. It became something of sorts in which the written word has a certain strength to it beyond anything else. This past Shabbat, I talked about another case. The case I talked about this past Shabbat before Minha... What's that? What happens if you would have written it? Would that make a difference? Yes. Would make a difference? Yes. Now, there's an interesting... So, Ezra asked, what if he would have written his retraction? So, there is the following... I, I will, you know, it's, it's related to this. The question is, if he wrote it, do we now have two texts... And each one of them are Eluva Elu Divre Elohim Haim, because the word that one of the students of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein writes is that he retracted an opinion about something, and he told them that I changed my opinion. Then they said, Maybe you want to now write it in your book. He said, No, that's okay. He said, But now people are going to follow you. He said, Eluva Elu Divre Elohim. That's a fascinating example. We did a, a class in which we discussed what does that mean? How does that work into a system in which we're determining law? But for our purposes, the second example I want to bring forth is what we addressed before Minhan Shabbat, and it goes as follows. We were talking about Halav Yisrael, Halav Akum the Gemara, the Mishnah, and Masechet Avodah Zaran Daflamet Hayamut Bet talks about the fact that we as Jews, rabbinically speaking, need to drink milk, Shehalavo Yisrael. It needs to be milked by a Jew. If it was milked by a non Jew, we at the very least have to be nearby and observing or have the capability to observe. Of course, you might ask the question that the milk that's being served right outside didn't have Jewish observation, didn't have a surveillance of any sort, so maybe that's not kosher. Of course, in today's day and age, we refer to the one that has the surveillance and observance, you know, in that respect as halav Israel. but it all needs to be halav Israel. so how are we drinking rabbinically forbidden milk? The answer is that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and his contemporary, a little bit before him in terms of strength of time period, Hazonish made the following bold and cogent claim. They said, since there's FDA, since there's a federal agency which determines and demands that the milk that is in the container actually meet what the ingredients state, that it's uh, a cow's milk and that nothing else is mixed in, such as a camel's milk or a donkey's milk or anything of that sort, we can sufficiently and very clearly 100% say that's what's inside of this container of this gallon of milk, that is Halav Yisrael. Hazonish wrote this explicitly in source number 19. We're turning this into a halakha debate. I'm not in halakha right now, Ezra. I, I, I will tell you, I, I know, but that was minha. minha before, but before minha, I would have given it. What I will tell you is Hazonish writes this explicitly in source number 19. However, 
none other than his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law, better known for his, his country, his uh, city of origin, or by the books he wrote, or alternatively as being the father of Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, you would say today. His brother-in-law's name was Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky, known as the Stipler Gaon, or the Kihilot Yaakov. He is quoted in several places in source number 20 for our purposes in the book She'elot Tishbot Kinyan Torah Bahalacha. He says, you want to know context when my brother-in-law made that statement? Hazonish was a towering Ashkenazic authority who lived in Bnei Brak and died in the, in the, in the 1950s. Um, his Pesach Halacha on this, again, is lenient, which is rare. You don't find many leniencies, but he is lenient on this. He says, as long as there's federal agency uh, uh, penalties with regards to if you mix anything else in, that's Halavi. So says his brother-in-law, that's not really what my brother-in-law said. What do you mean that's not what he said? That's not what he meant. He said it during a time period where there was fighting in the late 1940s in Israel for capturing the state of Israel. Shortly thereafter, there was no meat to be had that was kosher. The fish was problematic because it had worms and bugs in it. The frozen fish you couldn't check. We were looking at the people at the community in Bnei Brak and in Israel. We weren't able to feed them anything. He said then, listen, there's a real far-fetched leniency, but since you're not going to be able to eat anything other than some vegetables, we'll be lenient in this circumstance. All right, well, which one is it? The brother-in-law, attesting to the fact that his brother-in-law made that claim. There's a lot on the line, but really not that much because nobody in Bnei Brak is having Delwood milk today. But in, in theory, they should. If they're going to follow Hazonish, they should be able to unless they follow the brother-in-law. Now, the brother-in-law made that claim. Nobody will once the brother-in-law made the claim. Is that a proper claim? Is that how we would accept in halacha? The current chief Sephardic rabbi, Hacham Yitzhak Yosef, in one of his public classes in source number 21, it's in a book called Hashi'ur HaShavu'i. It's a transcription of his Saturday night classes from Kinesi Yazdim. He says, listen, it may have been contextually sensitive, but guess what? He never wrote that in his book. I'm not denying that he quoted from Rabbi Veltz, he quotes from Rabbi Kanievsky. They're good witnesses. I trust them. Aval, however, let's bring a book and open, look into it. He didn't write it only during time of war. He wrote it. Now, Rabbi Yosef, his father as well, would not, even though it sounds as if they would, go based on this Pesach Kalacha, other than Sha'at Adachak Mamash. I told the story on Shabbat that he tells in that same class that it was the coronation dinner in Brazil for Chacham I think in 1973, and he's with Admon Safra and the Safra brothers, and instead of serving meat, because they were very careful, the rabbi, we don't know, Halak, Bet Yosef, what sort of meat, they determined they we're going to serve dairy. So they serve dairy and Hacham Vadya Yosef asks, is it Halav Yisrael? I didn't know what he was talking about, but there's a rabbinic figure who says it's not Halav Yisrael. He turns to his sons and says publicly, we're not eating anything at this meal. Very strong stance. So they didn't, they didn't even go based on this, but from a scholarship standpoint, from a determination of Halakha <laughs> with regards to what do we say about Hazonish, the answer is again, ironically, in a domain that we imagine is oral at its core. A domain that's supposed to be tradition, what we do, how we've done it. Look at the determination is being set forth by the written word. Again, that seems to be the direction that halakha has taken 
for better or for worse, in many circumstances, not without protests along the way. So here now I bring you to the back, the beginning of our sources. What have we set forth as our goal, our ambition in this class? The goal is to determine and to realize how there has been over time some sort of transformation from an oral tradition to one that is determined, even though there's an oral side to it, even though the practice that you and I, I hope, adhere to is what we learned at home and what we saw and learned from communal norms and so forth, the final word on many matters is determined between when we weigh the written and the spoken word, the written word, again, based on what was practiced, but what was written down, will win the day. I'd like to bring you through a bit of a journey in a somewhat quick fashion. I'll begin you in source number one, the Gemara and Masechet Gitin, and the Gemara over there has the famous statement that in truth, Torah Ba'al was supposed to remain oral. It was a covenant between us and God that we have this spoken word. It's not accessible to others. Something that's written, you can look at, I can look at, and someone else can look at, it can get shared. If it's an oral tradition, if it's something that's spoken into the ears of the other, it's kept between us. Says the Gemara, nonetheless, it'll be Ohanan explained, says the Gemara, Kevan de la Efshar, since, as Rashi explains, matters were beginning to be lost over the course of exile forgotten over the course of difficulty of life, says the Gemara, that since we're losing their interpretation of the rabbis, the continuity of this tradition, we need to transgress what should not be done, and that is putting to writing, paper, parchment, the words of our tradition. So that's the first mention of taking Torah Shibbe'al Peh, the Mishnayot, and turn the Gemara, and putting it into text. Is that something we're excited about? Certainly not. What about after that's committed? What about once that's done? Let's say, for argument's sake, you have a great memory. Let's say, for argument's sake, you have a photographic memory. And as a result, you will remember and retain everything you've studied, and in turn, any of your novelties, any of your piskeh halacha, anything that you have with regards to Torah, will always be remembered by you, and you'll be able to repeat it to others. Is it permitted for you to put that into writing? Do we tap into, quote, an ideal during which it's kept oral, or alternatively, do we say, listen, I need to write it down, but if I didn't need to, I wouldn't write it down. In the yeshiva world, they say this is a mahloka between two important Ashkenazic rabbis, source number three and source number four, Rabbi Chaim Velazhenor and Rab Nassim Adler. Each of them had a different stance. For example, in source number three in the book Kete Rosh, it attests to the fact that although the rabbis say if you forget something from Torah, it's terrible. It's as if you're liable to the death penalty, said Rab Chaim Velazhenor, the student of the Gaon Midvilna. That was once upon a time. Today, when everything's written, Memory is less significant, it's reminiscent, it reminds me of the way we try to educate today. It's less about spit back, it's not so much about memorization. You have it on your phone, on your device, and it's in front of you now. Memorization is no longer what it's about. The memory is no longer what is going to distinguish the successful one and the other, and the failure, failed one. As a result, says Rabbi Chaim Velazhenor, that isur is no longer relevant. His contemporary, 
a little bit earlier, of Nassim Adler, who's the rabbi of Hatam Sofer in source number four, and Hutam Mishulash, and makes the following alternative claim. He says, I have, I will tell you, now he didn't write it, one of his uh, students' children wrote it, I will tell you about myself that I don't forget anything. As a result, I didn't write anything. It sounds like a convenient excuse, but the claim was, I shouldn't be writing anything. Shouldn't be writing. If I remember it, well, it's not etla asot, we should keep this oral, we should keep this a tradition. There's no reason, the only reason to write it down is because it's going to be lost, it won't be lost. And as, as a result, most people in the room don't even know who Rav Nassim Adler was. He was a towering personality in German Jewry, and we don't know who he was. Ironically, history had the last laugh on this. In other words, he didn't write down, his students tried to piece it together, and as a result, he's not so much remembered, but that, in my mind, is an initial juncture of questioning this new dimension of written Torah, where it could have been and should have been oral and tradition with regards to what's learned from the, stu- from the teacher, from the parent, isn't now appropriate for us to shift this, to modernize it, if, I, if you will, to be able to commit it to text. I'll bring you a bit forward on this. There was an individual, he was a towering individual. This one we all know about. His name was Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Harambam, for many reasons that he makes clear, others that he doesn't make clear, determined that it was very appropriate and necessary in his time period to commit the law to an organized set of books and written texts with regards to halakha, it's called Mishneh Torah. The question is about uh, whether we look back at that and we applaud it, or alternatively, do we look back at that and say, could have done better. Well, how could you have done better? I mean, it's a magnificent work of art. Matter of fact, Professor Chaim Salvechik makes that claim exactly about Mishneh Torah. He says, if you compare Mishneh Torah to other halakha books, Mishneh Torah is a work of art. Because you know the difference between arts and, and structure and stricture? The difference between the two is art is open to interpretation. If I look at the Mona Lisa, I see in it something that you don't see in it. And each one of us has a vantage point. It's open, so there's expressions in Harambam's Mishneh Torah. It was written in such a way that many, without sourcing, without sourcing, had he given you the sources, you and I couldn't debate what he meant because now we know exactly where he got it from. He compares it, for example, to Shohan Aruch. Anyway, so what's wrong with that? Couldn't get better than that. In She'elot Tishubot HaRosh, source number five, we're going to see now and throughout the class as a result, a division between Ashkenazic thought and Middle Eastern thought from somewhat here on out. Rosh, who originated in Germany but made his way to Toledo, Spain at the end of his life, uh, in his She'elot Tishubot HaRosh here in Kelal Lamed Aleph, he says, do you know this Pesach Halacha, doesn't matter what he's dealing with, is wrong. And I'll tell you how you came up with that wrong Pesach. You opened up to this book called Mishneh Torah. You didn't know the sourcing. You weren't familiar with the context, how and why this was determined. And as a result, you decided in your circumstance that this was the Pesach Halacha. That's a shame. That's a shame that this book was written in a way that it now is a stumbling block for people. Not to say that we can't have the book, but what a shame if only we didn't have the book. If only we were able to maintain this without that sort of textual stumbling blocks in our way. His son, ironically again, wrote a book called Tur. His son, Biakov, wrote a book called Tur, which is a collection of written halakha. Wouldn't expect that from Rosh, but his son, this is the way Professor Tashma suggests, his son was engulfed in Spanish culture. His son grew up in Spain, where there was a whole new mode of thought, very different than the German upbringing of his father. 
However, there was another brother. The bro- other brother, his name was Yehuda. In source number six, Shailot Shabot Zichron Yehuda, the other son of Rosh writes the following. I heard he writes to these individuals at the time. I heard you guys say there's so many different opinions in halakha. We don't know how to determine it. You know what we're going to do? We'll follow Harambam on everything, unless your father disagrees. Because it was a nice way to talk to the son. And we'll follow your father in that circumstance. He may have collected from the German traditions as well. So I mean, you can imagine he's going to be very excited about that. My father, are you going to follow my father's Pesach Halacha? First he says, I do appreciate that you're honoring my dad. However, my father made very clear in that source number five that when you have a situation where there's a debate, there's a discussion, you can't just say, well, I found it written like this. You need to prove your point. You need to keep this system, one that's oral, one that's moving, one that's discussing and in dialogue constantly, to have it turn into this static world of written texts is to lose the system, argues this Ashkenazi camp of Rosh and his son Rabbi Yehuda. Harambam clearly, for one reason or another, had a different approach. Maybe because of the time's necessity, but ultimately speaking, he was willing to commit to text how and what to do. He makes it very clear in his introduction. We have now a second generation type of issue with regards to how am I going to scale keeping the tenuous and dangerous traditions, talking to my children and making certain that they understand me, speaking in the synagogue and to the lay people as a teacher, as a mentor, and hoping that they understand me, where alternatively, if I committed to text, it's a lot safer, but I lost some of that dynamic dialogue and continuity. In fact, fast forward 350 plus years to the time, 400 years to the time of Rabbi Yosef Karo, another time of turbulence for the Jewish national community, another time during which many displaced people from Western and Eastern Europe, from Portugal and from Spain, find their ways displaced, find their, 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 their ways to Israel and other places displaced from their original communities, and Rabbi Yosef Karo sees this as an opportunity, maybe as a responsibility, maybe from the mystical perspective, as a way of bringing the redemption. Regardless, he commits to writing a book of law. And it's going to be different than Harambam. How's it going to be different? He's going to take into account all the opinions. He's going to be diligent in sourcing. The claims against Harambam, after all, were you didn't source things. We weren't able to discuss it. We just read your word. You closed our minds. We were no longer able to think and discuss this unless we went back to the text. So what did you help us with? Says Rabbi Yosef Karo, effectively, in my recreation of this, I'll fix that. No problem. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to give you all the sources. It's called Bet Yosef. Before he writes his book, Shohan Aruch, which was very quick to write, he spends over 30 years writing what's called Bet Yosef, the household of Yosef, where he goes through and brings all the traditions and rabbis into his household and presents them and determines, based on his understanding, what the bottom line should or could be. Fantastic. You solved it. You made textual dialogue multiplicity of opinions, bottom line though. But you gave us this other book, that Shohan Aruch book. 
Not only did he give us that other book, you also put it into writing, says his contemporary, Ashkenazi contemporary, Rabbi Shalomo Luria. In Yamshel Shalomo, in his second introduction to Masechet Chudin, says this Karo individual, he says he caused a lot of harm to us. It's true he gave us a lot of opinions. He left out some. Even though he knew it all, and he was really diligent and really extensive in his research, he didn't give it to us all. And his interpretation of some is not my interpretation of them. And you know what he did? He again misled us. Because now people open his book and they assume they have it all. They assume they solved all the issues of Harambam because now they know all the sources. They assume they have the bottom line because he made it so clear. He set forth for them a Shohan Aruch, a set table through his Beit Yosef and later in his Shohan Aruch. He's specifically most angry. It might even be before the composition of Shohan Aruch with that book, Beit Yosef. He's very, very critical. Says Rav Pe'alim, Rabbi Yosef Haim of Baghdad, before I tell you his reaction to this several hundred years later, let's just take stock of where we are at this juncture. Where we are at this juncture is, we began the class in realizing, if you recall, how although words are written, sometimes tradition or reality has it otherwise. How are we to determine in those circumstances? Our suggestion, and everyone, I think, felt good about that, especially Gabby, because it was the lenient opinion which was in writing. Uh, we're gonna go with the writing over the written. As we're developing this, we're understanding, I think, it's far from simple, because when you prefer the writing over the, the spoken, you're effectively losing that ability to develop. It became a lot more elasticity. The, the, um, the, the, it becomes a lot more rigid. The fluidity is a little bit lost, or more than a little bit lost. And we're noticing that every time the Middle Eastern or Spanish Jewry are determining we really should put some structure to this, the Ashkenazic Jewry is pushing back. The Ashkenazic Jewry, which oftentimes, if you compare, for example, their writings throughout the medieval time period, to the Spanish medieval approach, they're very much in the Gemara mindset. They're very much in the dialogue, in the not necessarily concluding the process, whereas the Spanish Middle Eastern Jews, more with the time of that period, were into coordinating and putting it together, to providing encyclopedic determinations, putting it... That's what's developing, and as a result, you'd imagine, perhaps, Harambam would be a failure. History had it otherwise. It's always easier for us to have something in writing. It's always easier for us to turn to the individual, individuals, and have them tell us what it is to do, and then determine accordingly, and then act accordingly, than to actually keep our minds and mouths and ears open to this dialogue. A lot more difficult, says Rav Pe'alim, that's the same Benish Hai we talked about at the beginning of the class, said, who had the last laugh on this one? Yamshel Shilomo, as I said earlier about someone else, how many of you heard about Rabbi Shlomo Luria. You've heard about Rabbi Yitzhak Luria. Never heard of Rabbi Shlomo Luria. Never heard of Yam Shel Shlomo. How many of you heard about Bet Yosef and Shohan Aruch? All of you, says Rav Pe'alim. We all accepted Shohan Aruch. Again, the structure of this class was that, that was going to be the way. It's another step in this written words of halacha, those written words, because of the concrete nature that they present to us, being the enduring words. As a matter of fact, in this context, ironically, most recently in this book, She'elot Teshubot Berkat Yehuda, which I 
as I was unpacking my books in Brooklyn, came across in his introduction to Chalak Bet, he is recounting this mahlok between Yamshel Shalomo and Bet Yosef. And he says, by the way, what's the lesson we learned from all this? I'm not fully certain the lesson we learned. He says, the lesson is write down everything. It's an amazing lesson. As he says, Shohan Aruch wins because he wrote everything down. Yamshel Shalomo, who says, I didn't want to write any of this, but I have to write it because it's the only way I'm going to fight against you, Shohan Aruch Bet Yosef. So he writes it down. says, Shohan Shabbat Berkat Yosef. He says, so you know what the lesson is? Write down what you think about. Write down what your determinations are. It's the way, I mean, I'm saying it bidi'avad, but it's the way it's going to be enduring. I'll conclude with another major and foundational issue with regards to this, to this matter, and it goes as follows. In source number 10, Ramar Rabbi Moshe Isilis in Yorede Asiman Resh Membet. Rabbi Moshe Isilis was a strong Ashkenazic Polish Jew, and as a result, we're going to expect him to adhere to this sort of oral dimension, moving us away from anything other than uh, leaving this open to a certain extent. He has the following Pesach, Halacha, and Siman, Resh Membet of Yoredea. He's basing himself on a Gemara, which is in source number 12, which can be read in one of two ways. He reads in perhaps the easier and more simple way. A person before the age of 40 may not determine halacha in a public fashion. They can't be posek halacha before they hit the age of 40. Of course, that would very much impinge me, but thankfully, Ezra, I'm not determining halacha over here, but it would be, it's, it's always what I say in terms of Kabbalah. We have traditions that are written in one or two places you're not supposed to do before the age of 40. Of course, the masters of Kabbalah, Ramchal and Arizal, both died before the age of 40. There's a lot of irony there, but it means you have to understand things differently. Anyway, that's his Pesach Alachasi mindset. He wrote it tongue-in-cheek. He's just trying to ward off the troublemakers and say, you see, you can't do this. The Gemara says, in Source 12, Masechet Sotai, you're not allowed to do it. However, go no further than 18th, 19th century Prague in the book, She'elot Tishbot Me'ahava. This was one of the major students of Noda Biudav, Rabbi Hezke Landa, who was the, uh, the chief rabbi of Prague at the time period, a towering halachic personality and, 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 and political figure for some time. He says that my master, my teacher, Noda Biudav, and the rabbis of that time period got together and put up signs. It's a little bit, there might be a few words that I mistyped because it's the version of uh, that I have is an old one. But anyway, effectively, you could read some of it, and I think I got most of it right. The signs said the following. If you're below the age of 40, we don't want you determining halacha. We have greater people than you. We have older people than you. This is a very strong matter, and it's a time of rabbinic strength, ironically, in 18th and 19th century Prague. They, it sounds like they were effective with it. I can't tell you whether they actually were, but that's their claim. Now, what are they effectively trying to do? Well, I'm not fully certain, but I can tell you the way it played out in the long run. The way it played out in the long run is in the following way. Chacham Yosef, echoing others before him, in Source 13, asks the following question. If you're below the age of 40, can you publish, is it appropriate, is it permitted to publish a halachic written work of, uh, of uh, a halachic book? Are you allowed to do that? So he says, well, I would imagine you're not. 
Rama told me I'm not allowed to determine halacha. He says, Sheilot Tishbot Tishubad Me'ahava said that if you determine halacha, it's a prohibition. He says, first and foremost, who said Sfaradim accepted the opinion of Rama? You can read the Gemara differently. Maybe Rabbi Yosef Karo did, based on his Tishubot and Avkat Rochel. But he goes further, and this is the part most relevant to us. He quotes from source number 14, 15, and 16. Uh, the 15 and 16, the most relevant ones to us. This source 15 was written by Rabbi Shemuel di Medina. He was a 16th century Greek rabbi. And source number 16 is Bihayim Shabbetai, also a 16th century Greek, Greek rabbi. And each of them make the following claim. Although, although we might uphold such a claim, that if you're below the age of 40, it's inappropriate to determine halakha. If you're in the context of others, we're in a new era. Why are we in a new era? Because our era is no longer determined by what he said against what he said. It's rather an era of what he wrote versus what he wrote. As a result, you might say to me, it's inappropriate for me to open my mouth against you. I'm not opening my mouth. The book is opening its mouth against you. My determination is no longer just based on my decision-making and dialogue. My decision is determined by the book that was written. It's the next stage. And again, the strong Sephardic flavor, the Greek flavor in this context, the Middle Eastern flavor in which there's this dependency and leaning on the books and the saying, we're in a new era. It may have been in the past. It might be an ideal, but it's far from who we are any longer to have halacha as this dialogue with this fluidity, with this elastic nature of you said this because you determined it from the sources. The, you might say it in these words, the trials and tribulations, the difficulties of exile have as a result determined this. But ultimately speaking, and I, I, will, I will piece everything together with this, whether this is something to bemoan or to celebrate is up to each of you to determine. I will tell you personally, of course, I see a positive and a negative. Maybe two years ago on Chabeav. No, but I, I do. On Chabeav, I, I, I talked about, I, I had a class and I called it the, um, the tragedy of texts. I was very honest in it, as I was with Gabby on Friday. I love texts. Texts are my association, my connectedness in a very real way to God and to my tradition in many ways. However, there's a particular tragedy in the advent and the, and the dependency on text. And that is, to give one or two brief examples, we gave many in this class, but one, for example, is the following, is the prayer book. The prayer book, the way Haram Bam describes it, is uh, something that was not the ideal, something that was not existent until exile took a hold, and as a result, we weren't able to be crafty in terms of our own description of praise of God and tapping into our own feelings and emotions, being able to articulate them appropriately. So a prayer book came about. I'm arguing over the course of this class as well that as the Gemara said in source number one, the ideal was that we had this as a covenant with God. A covenant might be written, but ultimately speaking is experienced. Halakha, this way of life, this relationship was supposed to be that exactly. It was supposed to be something that was growing with actions and conversations and discussions and proofs and understandings. However, for one reason or another, over time, first in the Gemara with the writing down of Gemara, then with the discussion of, well, I'm, I'm going out of order, but it's the way we did in the class. Well, once it's written down, should I now continue to write or should I de ideally keep that out of it? 
the discussion, the decision, ultimately speaking, is write a lot of books. You want to know why, as I said, with irony and a smile on my face, because that's what wins. That's what has won. Harambam's Mishneh Torah is a lot more enduring than, for example, the works of his son, Rabbeinu Avraham. Now, Rabbeinu Avraham did write halacha. He may not have had the same strength and same stature of his father, but they weren't published on a widespread uh, uh, way. We don't have most of them, but he set forth traditions. That's right, most of them were the most of them did not continue many generations, if not all of them. The written word has been that enduring work and reality for us as a people. There's a lot of interesting things that have emerged as a result. In the positive direction, we can now say sufficiently and with strength, everybody should be writing. Everybody can in turn be making decisions. After all, we're depending on text not just on a conversation where it might be inappropriate for me to stick my nose into if I'm younger than you and less experienced. Beyond that, we suggested as well, there were specific circumstances. Rabbi Yosef Karo's work of Halakha, Bet Yosef, although tragic, it closed off a certain thought, a certain ability, it was unifying in nature. It brought us together. And that's what I mean, Eli, that there is a positive. It's unifying. The prayer book did unify us. Rabbi Yosef Karo's Shohan Aruch did unify us. The closest you come to unity in every generation, in my mind, is, and it's a word that Gabby doesn't want me to mention either, is a uniformity. That unity comes, ironically, maybe tragically, with a certain uniformity. Once there's that conformity to a system, and I'm calling that the written text, there's certain direction over here, whereas although in the ideal sense I'd like there to be different directions, I find it unified most when it's all marching and speaking the same way we understand each other best. It was most recently in the 1960s a conversation between Cham Ben Zion, Meir Hayuziel, Chacham Ovadia Yosef, Rabbi Yitzhak Nisim, some of the Ashkenazic rabbis of the time period. There is, until today, when Rabbi Stav came, he talked very briefly about this as well. There's the continued conversation and discussion about how, uh, for example, the chief rabbinate should be structured. Should we have two rabbis today at the head? I know what you'll tell me, so we should have none. But should we have two or should it just be one? In other words, during a time period in which we're envisioning our closeness to the ideal, the opportunity to to now lead a country from the religious dimension in a way that's unprecedented, Rabbi Stav's argument is there should be one chief rabbi. Uh, many disagree with him, or you can understand why, but you understand the direction. It closes a certain conversation piece. There's no longer the Svaradim versus the Ashkenazim, which gives some vibrancy, which gives conversations, gives fights, gives debates, gives arguments. There might be an ugly side to that, but there's also a beauty to it as well. As time goes on, in my opinion, history has told us, and I'm sure this exists outside of halacha, outside of Jewish tradition as well, but certainly in the Jewish tradition, it's as those texts come about, they are, to a certain extent, a conforming document. They close dialogue. They're the enduring word because they are the easiest way to attach themselves to the people. There is, however, throughout that hope, that inspiration of a continued dialogue and conversation. The irony and the tragedy of the way we began the class then is that although I portrayed it to you in a positive light, well, we had these written texts and they retracted it. Of course, we're going to go with the written text. 
In my heart of hearts, I almost wish we were going based on what they said afterwards. I almost wish it was, well, that's written and that's up against. As, as Ezra asked, what if they wrote it both times? I want it to be, they spoke it both times. I want it to be, there was a fluidity to this, but I understand and admit to the reality that to put that into effect is to be asking a lot of a nation of people who are only still establishing themselves. In an ideal world, in my understanding, ending with the source that the text that our uh, our source sheets begin with, in an ideal world, this stays a Torah Shabbat. In an ideal world, this is a continued conversation. This is one in which those words of Torah and conversation between two sides and three sides are constantly ringing through the halls of any home and synagogue and the place of debate. However, the reality as it is, for reasons of practicality, of pragmatics, is such that Rabbi Yosef Karo Shohan Aruch, Harambam's Mishneh Torah, and today, you might say in the Sephardic world, the words of Hacham Ovadia Yosef in the Ashkenazic world, you might say the Mishnah Berurah, are ultimately speaking more and more the determining voice, no pun intended, or, or no irony intended, because it's not a voice, determining words with regards to the final line um, uh, in determining halakha. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen.